welcome back to another episode of the Better You Podcast. I am your host, Casey Maine. Thank you very much for tuning in. This week's episode is with Mark Crandall. Mark has a new book out titled Embrace Your Past, Win Your Future, The Difference Between Being a Victim and Playing One. And I heard Mark on a different podcast and I was just blown away by his entire story, what he's been through, what he's overcome, and then what he's been able to turn his life into now. But I also just really loved his his thoughts and his candor in terms of our, our limiting beliefs and how we can go about identifying and overcoming them. And I'm just, I'm such a believer that we tend to stand in our own way. And really, Mark's story is one that if he can overcome what he's been through, then I feel pretty confident we all can do the same thing. Mark is a keynote speaker, business consultant, transformational coach, author, and host of two podcasts, Purpose Chasers and Addiction Treatment 101. He went from a lost boy with countless traumatic experiences to drug addiction, prison, and an undying self-hatred to being a highly sought after clinical interventionalist and building multiple six-figure coaching practices. Really, it's truly an incredible story. And in our conversation, we talk a lot about victim mentality and the important distinction between being a victim versus playing one. We discuss an important shift in terms of how we view and approach any form of therapy or coaching. We talk about the importance of not just accepting the struggle, but also finding the positive in it. We discuss how the real issue preventing us from living the lives we want is not necessarily a lack of motivation, but rather a lack of belief in ourselves. And we talk a lot about accountability and its relationship with the concept of surrender. So enjoy this conversation with Mark. I know that you will be just as wowed by his entire story as I was. So my story, the starting place that I always use for some reason, unknown currently in my life, why I actually start here. But my story uh, starts at the age of three in which I remember being handcuffed and locked in a closet and burned with cigarettes. And I also remember my biological mother kidnapping me and bringing me to New York. Now, I didn't have all the words to define what was going on, but I do have the memories in my head. And as I you know, got on a path of transformation and started to peel the layers of the onion back through, you know, my early adult years into today, what I learned was, you know, my biological mother who was addicted to cocaine and other substances nearly drowned my biological sister in a bathtub and my grandmother called DCYF to file a neglect case with DCYF, which is the Department of Children, Youth and Families, for those of you who have no clue what that is. <laughs> and, you know, the state took custody of my sister and my mother decided uh, to take me. So she ran to New York with me. The, the uh, state officials finally got a hold of my mom in New York. They forced her to bring me back. I ended up going into foster care and was placed with my sister. And so when I was in foster care, it was literally the most confusing time of my life. My whole life was confusing, but I really didn't understand where my where my mom went. Where was my dad? Why am I with these replacement parents? Like, what is wrong with me? And it really solidified and built this foundation of victimhood, which I lived in for a long time. And I'll get into that more in a bit. And I had the most loving adoptive parents ever. They were just absolutely amazing. My adoptive father like worked like a dog. He had, you know, two and three jobs. So he would drive truck all night. He would wake up in the afternoon, he would go be a mechanic, and then he would drive truck again at night. And I think he was selling cars on the side as well. Like, my dad was just a hustler. And my mom was a nurse. And so at around the age of, I don't know, early early adolescence, I would say, like seven to nine, they started having difficulties, and they later got divorced. And that separation just really, really threw me. 
And it was, you know, the divorce was right on top of my sister, my biological sister and I's adoption. So here was what seems to be in society's eyes, like one of the most magical things that can happen to a delinquent youth, right? This new family takes ownership of them, which actually happened to be the most confusing time of my life. And I, you know, I, I go deep in, in my book about this, but I remember going to school. It was on Halloween and I trying to explain to my classmates why I was about to leave school. They were like, where are you? you know, I just think about it today. I don't have all the words or the memories, you know, trauma does some cr- pretty crazy things to an individual's memory, mm-hmm. as you know. Um, and I remember going to school and my classmates being like, where are you going? And I had to say to them, like, I'm going to, I'm getting new parents. And then them, them saying like, well, where are your parents? And I'm like, I, and just like not having the answers. Well, I don't know. Why do you have new parents? I just didn't have the answers and it left me really confused. So there I was adopted right after the adoption came the divorce, then came their son. My adopted parents had a son. It was just the most confusing like time in my life that I can remember. And at the time I was 11 or 12, we'll escalate it a little bit, 11 or 12. And I started smoking weed and drinking and I started setting fires and just getting really, really destructive in my day-to-day life. And my uh, adopted parents came together, even though they were separated and they attended one of my therapy sessions and they told my therapist, Dr. Atkins, I love giving him shout shout outs because he he literally the seeds he planted in my adolescent they they cracked the surface so to speak. I like to think of like a plant growing. Mm-hmm. They cracked the surface like ten and fifteen years later. So it was like a rose breaking through concrete. And they went to visit him, and he guided them to file what what was in New Hampshire was called a chins petition, which is a child in need of services. So basically, it's for individuals that become wards of the state. The adopted families have this process that they can go through to essentially reach back out to the state and say, uh, we can't handle this. Will you help? And so they did, and I got placed in my first institution at the age of 11, at which time I became educated by older youth that were also in this institution on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So there I was going into an institution to become rehabilitated, and what I became was more of a criminal. And so when I came out, you know, I begged my mom to buy me all these new dress clothes. So I felt like if I wore polo shirts and a polo, the brand was really, really big then. And it was like something that we couldn't afford, you know, because my mom was a single mother and a nurse and she had three children and she was, you know, working 50, 60 hours a week. But she made it work. And so she went and bought me all these preppy clothes and I went back to school, just this hollow, angry, confused, dressed up kid. (laughs) (laughs) At least you looked good. (laughs) Yeah, I did look good. And I mean, it's, you know, Casey, it spiraled out. Like I became really, really addicted to drugs. Even the kids that I was smoking marijuana with were saying like, you have a problem, man. Like we, cause they could, and I didn't understand it at the time. Like they could like you know, buy a bag of weed at the beginning of the week and like space it out and make it last all week. But there I was like just smoking the entire bag. And I I just really, I knew deep down, even at a real, real young age that there was something wrong with me. Like just, I just wasn't, I just wasn't right. I was, there was something different. And like I said, the the victim shield that I lived in for a long time just continued to grow and grow and grow. So all the jams that I got in, you know, from 13 to I would say 23, I would just blame on my past. Well, if you had the past I had or if this was done to you, have you ever been handcuffed and locked in a closet? Have you ever had your mom state that she's coming and she doesn't show up? You know, have you ever seen your dad drunk? Like my first visit with my daddy, my bio daddy taught me how to roll a joint. Like it just like, did you have that? And I would, 
use all of these things from my past. And there's other things that I won't get into on this show, but all I would use all these things as leverage to try to defend the way that I was. So I was playing the victim. Were you still in therapy at this time? Oh God, I've no, I've never left therapy okay. to, to this day. I mean, every, you know, my mentor says, and I believe it's true that every good therapist has a good therapist, right? Every, every good coach has a good coach. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I became really, really addicted to drugs. I called my weed dealer one day at 16 and asked, you know, said, Hey, I'm going to come over and get a bag or whatever the hell hell I said to him. And he said, well, I don't actually have any weed, but I have something better. And I was like, Oh wow. Well, what's better? Like he had, he had really good weed and not. And so I went over to his house and he's like, Hey, I, you know, I have this stuff like, you know, it's $10 a bag. You were going to spend 20 with me. You know, I'll give you two bags, but I'll give you a free one to try. I was like three bags. All right, cool. And he's like, it's better than weed. Like if you do one bag, it's like, you know, smoking two blunts. And I was like, well, I want to smoke four blunts. Oh God. So I did two bags of what I found out was heroin. Oh, boy. Yeah, after never, you know, never doing it before in my life. And I fell in love. It just it just took me to this euphoric place that I had never experienced. And as with everyone that you've ever heard that's addicted to heroin, like it, it got really dark. Mm-hmm. My criminal, my, I mean, my criminal activity increased. I was stealing from everyone. I was crawling through windows. Uh, my mom kicked me out. I ended up going to county jail for burglaries. I did a year in county jail, came out of county jail, started going to recovery meetings, no clue what recovery was or how to live an honest life or that you know, being in recovery involved you living an honest life if you wanted a long recovery, <laughs> like mm-hmm. stint in recovery. Were you just going to those recovery meetings because it was mandated as part of being yeah, it was court. Yeah, it was court ordered or I was going to go back. And, and at the same time, you know, my years in recovery now, like at the same time, there was a degree of me that wanted it, but there was this rough exterior that wanted to show that I didn't want it. And that rough exterior and the behaviors that I was still engaged in really prevented any kind of recovery from seeping in. Mm-hmm. But so I that mean, was like I, part of your identity. At that totally. Point. Yeah. I mean, now, now I'm like some hardened criminal, right? Because I just did a year in county jail. So in my mind, like I'm listening to gangster rap music and I'm like, I get them, you know, mm-hmm. they get me. And it was just this, you know, I'm not blaming rap music at all, but here I am out of county jail, this lost, confused, angry boy who's now sober. So, you know, sober for me is just a really ugly place It because I don't, I, I don't have any chemicals to mask what's internally going on with me. And so I was just a rageaholic. I began engaging in criminal activity again because I couldn't hold a job because I I threatened two employers, like physically threatened them because I was just was just a psycho. Mm-hmm. And so here I was living at my mom's. I met this girl. She wanted me to get her. I think it was some Percocets or something, something like really adolescent in the drug game. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can get you know, I can get you those. And I still had connections. And so I got them for and I was like, you know, I'll never do Percocets. It's like not even it's really not even a narcotic, blah, 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 blah. Whatever story I told myself, I got them. And I have this thing that goes on in my mind and you know, with anyone that suffers from addiction, you know, maybe take a look and see if you have this. If you do, you may be suffering from something that you can't do on your own or you can't fix on your own. And so I had this mind that started to say, well, you know, it's only Percocets. It's not even really a drug. And, and this is in the process of like me getting home with the narcotics to take a shower, to get ready to go to my recovery meeting, to leave my recovery meeting, to go pick her up and go on a date and give her these this gift that I got her, right? Like, what mm-hmm. the like what the hell's wrong with me? And so I get home back to my mom's house and I have these pills and they're in like a cigarette case or wherever they are. And I go to get in the shower and my mind goes, well, you could, you should just sniff one of them. And it's like not even a drug. It's not even a relapse. Like you're fine. And so I did. But then I have this thing that happens in me once my mind tells me to do it, that it, it ignites this more in me. Mm-hmm. 
And it's always been there and I didn't know it was there and I didn't have any wording, any, you know, any verbiage for it. Like I hadn't, like I didn't have anything to identify it as. And so then I did them all and I blew off going to meet her. And obviously I didn't go to the recovery meeting cause that would have been awkward. And I got high and I went back to the dealer's house and thus started another one. And, you know, I started robbing people and my mom knew I was using, she knew I was robbing people. I was dodging my probation officer. Probation officer came to my house. I was supposed to go to treatment. Long and the short of it is I got arrested for six more burglaries. Um, not long after that and, you know, went to New Hampshire state prison for two years with, uh, conditions, of going to complete a 12 to 18 month therapeutic drug and alcohol treatment center upon leaving the prison. And so I, you know, was in prison for two years. I don't talk tough about it. It's not a a tough thing. And for anyone that's ever been there, that's acting tough, you know, deep down, like it's not a tough thing. It's a waste of life. And I did nothing but read books and play skipbo and get high the whole time I was in there. It was just really a waste of life. But I do say something that's really risque, and that is that the New Hampshire State Prison rehabilitated me. And they rehabilitated me because they forced me to get my GED before they would parole me to this drug drug, drug and alcohol treatment center. And so I went to this drug and alcohol treatment center with my GED, absolutely hating life, terrified of what the world had to offer, um, spent about 11 months there contemplating my own suicide because I didn't think mm-hmm. that I was ever going to get it. And I didn't understand why I was still obsessing about getting high and obsessing about criminal activity. And Because yeah. there you were completely sober, right? Like there's nothing sneaking in there. Uh, there were, there were people getting high in there. Mm. There were people getting high, but on August 23rd, 2007, the, the day that I walked out of New Hampshire state prison, I wanted a new life more than I ever had. Like I hit bottom in prison mm-hmm. and it was two weeks before I was set to go to this treatment center. And the bottom came from this just I can't even explain it. I just got goosebumps when I said it, but it was just this just horrific feeling of failure. And I just had this awakening in in sitting on my bed in prison thinking I'm about to go to treatment in two weeks and here I am still getting high. Like, what is wrong with me? And, you know, when I left prison and I had been out of I spared you a lot of other trips to institutions But I've been released from institutions like at least a dozen times. Mm -hmm. And this time it was unlike any other time I'd ever experienced. This time I had no hope. Like I really didn't believe there was a way out for me. Every other time I'd been like, hey, mom, buy me some Nikes. Let me get some new clothes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's going to be great. This time I was like, you know, I don't want to swear on your show because you didn't give me a disclaimer or not. But oh, you totally can. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, good. I, so this time I was like, man, I'm fucked. Yeah. Like, I'm just. Do you just... think that's because, like, this pattern had repeated so many times that now it's like all hope was gone because I guess you had just, you had, quote unquote, failed too many times before for you to even believe things would be different this time? Yeah. And it just, it was like every, every attempt, every failed attempt, right? Like every attempt was a failure. And, and I just didn't know what was wrong with me. I had no idea. And I also didn't know that the place that I was in is like the ultimate foundation for a transformed life. Mm -hmm. Right. I just had complete surrender. I was willing to do Anything and everything that this treatment center asked me to do and later got back into, you know, a program of recovery and and met a man who, you know, called me out on playing the victim and just started to just feed me life. And I caught fire. I caught some self-esteem. I found some self-worth that later transitioned into this ego. And I believe there's two sides of the ego. I believe there's the side that tells me that I'm as good as you, which I don't believe is bad. And then there's the side of me that tells me that I'm better than you. And, and, 
you know, I, I landed in the place of I'm better than, and then I transitioned out of that. And then I started to find some, you know, what Maslow considers the, the self-actualization stage. And I started to later transition into that in which I don't need to be better than anyone else. I've just like, I am. So I got off parole four years early. Uh, I was, you know, two years after prison was, uh, cleared to go back into the prison that I left to volunteer. And I'll just, I guess I'll just drop, drop off here for the sake of you asking questions. But I like landed into this opportunity of a life of transformation from this broken place of suicidal ideation. Yes. Okay. So I want to dive in a little bit to, so that, that time in the treatment center where you really start to turn things around because I, you know, you see it so often and you hear it in so many people's stories that you hit rock bottom. And then that's when, that's when change does come. And I think there's an element of that. You've tried everything else, hopelessness. So to your point, it is almost like this surrender without even realizing you're surrendering because you're just like, I don't, you know, I give up, like I'll do whatever you tell me to do. But I mean, you had some serious childhood trauma. So how did you, how did you even go about healing from all of that? Like, what was that process for you? So I had been doing, participating in traditional therapy from the age of three and it just didn't work. And I still don't think it works. And here's why I don't think it works. And for those of you listening, I do hold two licenses. I have practiced therapy for a number of years. Uh, I just don't think it works. I believe that the mental health industry is broken. And here's why it's broken. It's broken because when I go seek you, I'm expecting you to fix me. And there's, there's a subconscious thoughts within me as the therapist of I don't really want you to get too well because if you get too well, I don't have a client. And if I don't have a client, I don't make money. So it's really this broken industry of like, I want you to fix me. I expect you to fix me. I'm paying you money to fix me. And then, a, you know, the therapist's mind of like, well, if he gets fixed, then I don't have a client. Right. right. I mean, that's what's broken with the entire healthcare system in general is that everyone is paid on treatment, not people being well. <laughs> so, Total. Yeah, well, I hadn't thought of that in in terms of the mental health industry, but I, I can see how that that could be a component there too. Yeah, it's across the board. I mean, rich white people created this system that we now follow and call law, right? Like they created the healthcare system. They created. I mean, you look at the DSM, which is the DSM-5, which is now the, the coding for mental health diagnoses, which determine um, insurance billing. And so I hit this place in treatment where I was just sick of therapy and I started um, seeking self-help. Right. And I don't I don't believe that there's anything as, as any such thing as self-help. I believe there's divine powers out there, God, universe, whatever you know, your audience wants to call it. Maybe you don't believe in anything, but I don't believe that you can live on this earth and not believe in anything truly if you're seeking. And so I just, I like really got into the spiritual side of it and I started reading. I mean, one of the first books that I read was Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. Mm -hmm. And that book guided me to, to ask my first mentor to mentor me. And I just started to look in this world of self-help and personal development. And I was reading, you know, I was reading books by the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh. And, you know, I was doing some uh, meta meditation practice, uh, loving kindness. I, I love Tara Brock and I reached out to her like 12 times to come on my podcast, but her schedule is. So I'm just going to keep dropping her name till eventually nice. <laughs> I, I, I can tell her how she taught me how to love myself. And. I just started like on this path of transformation. And as I was on this path of transformation, my thoughts on the mental health industry changed. And I later, you know, probably five, five years into my recovery, I was in a place where I had done so much transformational work within 12 steps in a, in a, in just thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours worth of other transformational programs. I, I was at this place where I was like ready to really, really go deep on my childhood. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had heard of EMDR. I had, you know, colleagues that were practitioners of EMDR. And I was, it was kind of a fast track through, through my story, but I was, I had gotten a job through seeking a mentor and with my criminal past, even though everyone told me in my, when I was getting my undergraduate degree in human services, that with my felonies, I would never be able to work in the field of human services. Like they just don't hire convicts. And I got this mentor, he got me a job interview and I got hired by child and family services to work as a runaway and homeless youth social worker. And so I was working with runaway and homeless youth and I'd been doing it for like a year and a half and come to find out I was really skilled at it because I got them. And I had to make a call to DCYF on a client that I was working with. And the situation was so similar to my childhood and what was going on that I was reliving the trauma without even having the words to say it. Right. So as therapists and healers, that's why it's so important to have people with a higher level of vision around us because I didn't see it. And so I'm in this place of like re-traumatization. My supervisor, Aaron, came to my office and I was crying and I, I couldn't make the phone call. And so she sat down with me. She ended up making the phone call to DCYF and she said, Mark, I really, really, I want to refer you to this woman and her name's Ann Freeze. And I want to give her a shout out as well. She's still practicing in Concord, New Hampshire. If you're looking for a, she has a wait list, but if you're looking for a phenomenal EMDR practitioner for trauma. And so she referred me to Ann and I showed up in Ann's office and, you know, we're doing the intro session and I said, where are the paddles? So with EMDR, for those of you who don't know, it is, and I'm not going to like, I'm I'm not going to get too heady with it. I'm going to give you the Cliff's notes version So trauma is stored on one side of your brain. And what EMDR does is you, through the process of reliving your trauma, talking through your trauma, you're either holding paddles or following somebody's finger or however they're doing it. So you're stimulating both sides of your brain as you're reliving this trauma. And so this process takes the trauma, which is stored on one side of your brain, which causes those deep like anxiety attacks and like, oh, my God like all these strong reactions because it's stored on in one spot, it takes it through the process of EMDR and it scrambles the trauma throughout your brain. And so I show up in the session with Ann and she's talking to me and we're like really, really surface level. And I'm like, all right, I'm ready. And she goes, what does that mean? And I was like, look, I was handcuffed in a closet. I was burned with cigarettes. Like my Mom's first boyfriend like smacked me through my sister down the stairs. Like one of my first memories of my mom is her sniffing cocaine off a chest freezer with, you know, with strangers. And I was sitting in the living room watching Fraggle Rock. I remember I remember waking up one morning with just knots in my stomach because I was so hungry at the age of three and asking my sister where mommy was. And she said, mommy's mommy's at the diner eating breakfast. And I just remember like being lost and and I just went off and she was like, Oh God, you're ready. And I'm like, yeah, please give me the paddles or let's, let's go. And so, but my perspective of the industry and what I was engaging in had changed. I knew that she was, she was essentially the, the median, if you will, like she was the person to guide. I had to do the work. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift that I believe needs to take place is like, you don't go see therapists to get fixed. You go through therapists so that you can walk down the path of transformation. And I want to share share this. We were about to leave Austin. We just moved to uh, to Philly to be closer to family. So we're on the, back on the East Coast. And it was like my last weekend in Austin. And I went. I had a couple friends in town. And we went to my favorite coffee shop, which is Texas Coffee Traders. If you want to sponsor me, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going there because the I'm getting, I'm literally getting 20 pounds of my favorite roast of coffee to bring with me to Philly. And so they bring you on like through their roasting plant and they give you a tour. And I'd met the owner, this woman, brilliant mind, uh, a few times in going there. And so she, you know, we're going through the tour and they're talking about the different beans and based off of the region, 
that the bean is grown, some beans are bigger, some beans are smaller, some beans are greener, some beans are darker. And what she's like, you know, her, her student or her employee is like educating us on this. And she comes over and she listens and you can just feel, you know, when you can feel somebody's spirit, like this woman's alive and I feel her energy when she comes over and I'm like, Oh, she's got something to say. And so he's talking about the beans and he's trying to explain to us why this one bean from Ethiopia is smaller than this other bean from Brazil. Right. And, and she's talking about it or he's talking about it and she stops him and she goes, let me explain it to you like this. And she looks me dead in the eyes. She goes, that smaller bean doesn't get enough credit. Do you know why that smaller bean tastes better? I'm like, no. And she's like, because that smaller bean didn't grow up in an environment to really nourish and allow it to flourish. That smaller bean had to struggle to grow to that size. And it was a daily struggle. And she walks us through this whole metaphor of life, right? Mm -hmm. And she's like, that smaller bean, even though it gets shit on by the world, tastes so good in your cup. Why does that smaller bean taste so good? Because it had to struggle to get where it was. And so she drops this like mic drop moment. She's like, <laughs> she's like, it's the struggle that creates the taste that creates the fulfillment. And she walks away. And I'm like, I'm just like, I'm just standing there like that's a purpose chasers podcast episode. That's like a new book. And because I'm a content creator. So I'm thinking. So it's in this moment in the in doing the CMDR that I'm really like in this coffee bean moment. Mm-hmm. You're doing and the struggle. So, yeah. And so I just started doing the work. And I think that was the massive change that took place for me. And a lot of people fight the path of transformation. But I'm like so grateful that I get to spend the rest of my life on it. So I, I love that you bring up EMDR and I actually, I did an earlier episode on that and I was, I was fascinated by it because I loved the whole concept of just the fact that we, we do store these childhood traumas and EMDR allows you to go back to them, but almost in a safer space because you're not back in that exact time experiencing all that emotion. So it's kind of like on an I don't know if it's an energetic level or a brain chemistry level, like to go back to those wounds and allow them to heal. Like, I just, I think it's really important to recognize the power of what we've been through and how like our body is going to remember that even though our mind is trying to forget it on, on every level. So I love, I'm fascinated by EMDR. I had no idea that that was part of your, your healing process. It was a it was a a massive part of my healing process. And I've done, like I said, I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours attending events and workshops. And and honestly, if I'm going to be fully transparent, like the more cult like it sounds, the greater chance I'm going to go attend it. (laughs) You know, what I've learned is there's a reason why people gossip about certain things. So I get excited about the thought of going to find a new therapist. I get excited about the thought of going to attend a new workshop or, you know, I have a, I have a coach that I've been working with now for six months that I literally just paid for the entire year. And I didn't even need to, I can pay session by session, but like I get really, really excited to hit new pain to, because I know from that coffee story that the pain that I hit means the, the better tasting coffee that's going to come out of it. And I just... I just get really, really excited. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on like, I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But I hit a place in my life and in my recovery and in my transformation where it was literally like, okay, I live with this every single day. Like you live with your trauma every day, Mm -hmm. whether you're subconsciously aware of it or not or consciously aware of it or not subconsciously, you're living with it. And that was the place that I hit. Well, so I I think that is such a a huge shift. And it comes back to something you said earlier, which I made a note of because it really hit me is kind of going back to the the mental health industry and how we as as the person have to go into it with the belief that we can fix ourselves versus looking to somebody else to fix us. And I think once you really 
buy into the fact that you can fix or heal yourself, then it's like the second step is signing up for that struggle, which means it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. It's going to, you know, kind of bring us up against that battle of wanting to do the easy thing that our present self wants to do versus the hard thing that'll be better for our future self, you know, which I imagine ties back to, we don't choose to do that because we have all these limiting beliefs. Like how do you coach people to start to make that shift from, from looking outward for help and being fixed to understanding we have everything we need to do it. And yes, it might be difficult, but it's worth it. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I outline this and not to plug my book, but I do outline it in my book to plug my book, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. Plug your book. I, yeah. I we definitely want to talk about your book. So embrace your past when your future is, is a book that I wrote to literally to share my story of my victim mentality and, and walk the reader through a process of a series of exercises that I've undergone to go from victim to victor, not to sound cliche, but to actually use my past as fuel to create the life of my dreams. And so the place that you need to come to really, if I'm going to give an easy, easy version is you really need to evaluate what it's costing you in your life to not take action, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and if that out if the cost of what if the cost is outweighing what you're receiving from not taking action, which is self validation and continued, you know, you get to continue to play the victim and you get to play small and you don't have to take risks and you don't have to trust people and you get to say that, like, I'm not good at relationships or whatever it is that you get to continue to tell yourself. When you evaluate that and you see that the cost is no longer giving you the reward. So everything, everything. I love Maslow and I love the work that he did. Like, I believe in his hierarchy of needs. And I believe so many people are stuck on the first two stairs and I'm not going to break it down in here, but most people just recycle. They go up one step, they come down to the first step. They go up one step, they come down to the first step and no one ever actually reaches this place, which is like, it's like a land of unicorns. Like if you look at, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the self-actualization, no one ever actually gets to that place, which is not true. You can get to that place. But in order to get to that place, you need to start with the way that I'm living, the way that I'm showing up is not working and I'm not receiving the reward that I used to. So I used to get really, really rewarded by not having to take risks, by saying I'm a convict. No one's ever going to hire me. That meant I didn't have to apply for jobs. That meant I didn't have to face rejection like that meant all of these things. And so when I got to the place of like, you know, so I was one of the first convicts to get hired by the state of New Hampshire. And I actually, you know, took a risk, went through the interview process, got hired. The union leader, which is a big newspaper in New Hampshire, not that newspapers are big anymore, but they wrote an article and the headline read on Sunday morning paper, convicted burglar counsels youth. That was the headline. And it was like one of the most liberating moments of my life after I processed it and evaluated what was actually happening in which I saw that my story was now a, a glimmer of hope for those that didn't believe. So you get what I'm saying? Like the once the reward, once you're you're no longer receiving what you were receiving, you either wither away and die as a human and pretend to be OK, which is what most people are doing mm -hmm. or you go in. Right. And so what I did is I kicked the door in on my mind with a SWAT team called transformation. And I just started to clear rooms, right? Like clear, 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 get on the ground. Right. And I just started to zip tie the demons and throw them in, in a cell and like that, you know, and it, and it just, it just continues and continues, but yeah, you have to, you have to hit a place of like, it's not working. And I would challenge you if you're listening to this and you think that it's working, is it really? Is it really? And I share this. I used to say, and it's probably going to change in the next six months, but I used to say I only have one fear in this life. And then I had a son. So now I have some more fears that are that are manifesting. But mm -hmm. I used to say, and I still believe that I only have one true fear in this life. And that is the moments that I know that I'm about to pass 
it, I, I can, I cannot imagine lying there on my deathbed thinking about all of the things that I wished that I had done. Mm-hmm. And the only things like literally the only things that are preventing me from doing the things that I, that I want to do in this life are limiting beliefs. And I'm going to do one more tangent. And most people believe that they lack motivation. I don't believe that anyone lacks motivation on this earth. I believe that motivation is fake. I believe it's hype. If humans lacked motivation, they wouldn't start all of the things that they do. What humans actually lack, it's not being talked about enough, is a belief in themselves to fulfill on the things that they want to create in life. I've started and stopped so many things in my life. I don't actually lack motivation. I am a starting machine. I guarantee you, once we finish this podcast, Casey, you could go, you could go start 52 things. Right. And maybe finish a half of one six years down the road. You don't lack motivation. You lack the belief in yourself. So when you start, stop focusing on the external and you start focusing on the internal and you hit a place of surrender, that's when the gates of transformation can open. Right. I, I, I completely agree with that. I think that what trips up a lot of people is like, okay, what does the act of surrender actually look like in day-to-day life? You know, cause one could argue, all right, well, I'm just going to sit here on my couch surrendering to like whatever life brings me. So like, how do you, how do people walk that line of going after the things they want yet also kind of just accepting what life brings and working with that? Yeah, uh, there's a piece that's also overlooked, and that's accountability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I can't do this alone. You know, I actually 20 minutes ago got a call from uh, one of my accountability my accountability partners, this woman named Carolyn, who I'm actually going to intro to come on your show because she, you, I mean, you guys are BFFs from way back. You guys are going <laughs> to love each other. They're, she's just, she's the most one of the most powerful humans I know, and you know, it's just accountability. Like, did you do the thing that you said you were going to do? No. What's preventing you from doing the thing that you're going to do? Okay. Let's talk about that. Let's evaluate that. We know that that's not true. Now go do the thing that you said you were going to do. And so it just comes down to accountability. And that's why I invest what I invest into accountability. You know, that's why I said I, you know, I'm paying my coach a year in advance. Why? Not necessarily for what he's going to do for me, but what he's going to hold me accountable to do. Like I'm powerful beyond belief. I don't need to seek an event or seek a person to find the thing that I, that I already have within. I need somebody to stand for me, to believe in me when I can't stand and believe in myself to push me to go beyond the, the lie in my head that says, Mark, you're a convict. Like they're going to find out. Don't print a book. No one's going to buy it. Yeah. See, that's, I love that even as just, that's kind of a subtle mental shift to look at, um, a coach or, um, a, even a, like a personal trainer or a therapist, even rather than view these individuals as people who are going to quote unquote fix us or do the work for us, but bring it back around to like, we are in charge of our own lives. No, this is somebody who I am choosing to help keep me accountable because I am in charge of my life. Like I am not the victim of it. So I love that's just like such a subtle reframe, but I like that. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very, very small. And a lot of people, and I've, I mean, I'm very selective now, you know, of I, so I've built three different coaching practices since I've walked from traditional therapy and I've, you know, scaled them all to a hundred thousand plus in the last four years. And I would coach anyone at any time on anything. And I got to a place of like, I'm very, very strategic and selective of who I coach now because a lot of people want to coach with you because they think that you're going to do the, they're going to pay you to do the work for them. Right. And that's just not, it's just not how it works. And it's just not, you have to do the work. I will push you. I will guide you, but you have to do the work. It's the aspect of accountability that comes in where I know, and this is real life, I have a list of things to do that I committed to my coach that I'm going to do. On Tuesday morning, when I go to click on his Zoom link to jump on a call with him, in my head, it's in my my consciousness right now, 
I have three things that I need to do today so that I can go into the weekend clear, knowing that I'm jumping on my call, ready for a new clearing with him, a new opening, a new opportunity. But most people live, most people live their life with to-do lists and that are never going to get done. And so there's never a new opportunity, even though they want a new life. Like you have to do the things that you've been talking about doing to show the universe, God, whatever you believe in, that you're serious so that that being or the universe can open new opportunities for you. I love that. Um, Okay. One last question, and then I'm going to let you go because I know we're we're coming up on an hour here. Um, But just because I love the subtitle of your book, the difference between being a victim versus playing a victim. And one could very easily look at your life and specifically like your early years of your childhood and see you as a victim. I mean, at three years old, handcuffs, cigarette burns, like, yeah, like you didn't, you didn't choose that. Like you were a, a victim of that. So for anybody who has, and, and maybe it's something as intense as that or whatever they have in their own life that they see as this was done to me, I had no choice. What is like a first step? I'm big on first steps for, for people. Like what is one thing they can do to start to shift that mentality that from being focused on what was done to us to like what we can do? I love how I love how you say um, how you you made this statement. I'm going to let you go because we're approaching an hour and then you open Pandora's box. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Uh, That's how I trap you into talking longer. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's well played. Well played. So the difference between being a victim and playing one is it's a it's a distinction that I actually came up with while running a clinical group at a facility that I was a therapist at. And in this group, I wrote the difference between being a victim and playing one on the board. And I was like, well, that's going to be something someday. And that was like two years before I, you know, actually wrote the book. And the difference is, is like a lot of things in my past happened to me, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm a victim of those circumstances. The choice comes in and not no longer wanting to play the victim. So I made a decision and have done a crap ton of work to no longer blame my current circumstances off of uh, situations that happened to me from the age of three to 12. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. And so the. The number like I guess to leave your listeners with like something tangible would be to say this. I made a shift from everything from my past happened to me to everything from my past happened for me. And so most individuals view their lives and their trauma from the negative. I would challenge you to go back and look at what happened and then create a list of all of the attributes that that thing gave you, that experience gave you. So if you look at me like I'm resilient, I'm a super hard worker. I don't trust people, which has created this this guiding intuition. I can get a read on another human in 30 seconds and know what their motives are, who they are, how they tick, like I just know. And so when I evaluate some of those attributes that came from such a negative experience, I take the focus off the negative. I take the focus out of the victim mentality. So I would challenge you to your listeners to take a look at all of the positives that came from that. And if you can really, truly identify the positives that came from that, and it's really easy to play the victim. And if you want to know how you can continue to play the victim, It's this easy. Nothing positive came from that. It's that easy. You Mm -hmm. just close the door on it. But if you really sit and evaluate, okay, that experience of being handcuffed and locked in a closet, my childhood showed me how to be the greatest dad in the world Mm -hmm. by showing me all of the ways that I don't want to be for my son. It's it's a it's a long shift. And some of you may be going, well, that's so difficult. Grab a notebook and a pen, do a prayer, do a meditation 
and just start to evaluate. That's how it starts, the shift. Yes, I, I love that because it, it takes it a step further than because it's one thing to, you know, you see what happened to you. So like you were a victim of those circumstances, so to speak. And then it's one thing to be like, OK, do I still allow that victimhood to play a role in my current life? Like, am I still playing the victim? As you said, I, just, I, I love that difference. But then take it a step further to be like, OK, not only am I not going to play that victim card, I'm going to find the good in what happened like that's that I love that okay so I will let you go now um, but please tell everyone first like where they can find you where they can buy your book where they can listen to your podcast follow you on the socials everything follow me on the socials at the purpose chasers uh, my podcast is the purpose chasers podcast and everything within me is on uh, markcrandall.net okay great well, thank you so much. I really, I appreciate it. Um, I, this was a great conversation. You have an absolutely amazing and inspiring story, and I really appreciate you sharing it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, thank you again to Mark for all your insight and for sharing your story with us. A couple quick things before you guys go. If you haven't already, please go ahead and hit subscribe on whatever app you are listening to this podcast on. Please rate and review the podcast. That really helps a lot in terms of discoverability. And you can follow the podcast on Instagram at The Better You Podcast. Uh, you can reach me if you have any feedback or topic recommendations or guest suggestions. You can email me at thebetteryoupodcast at gmail.com. And of course, as always, I ask that you please check out my book, I Gave Up Men for Lent, the story of a jaded, hopelessly romantic, health-conscious party girl search for meaning. You can read all about it on my website as well as a lot of the reviews, and you'll see that it really is a book for anyone as it just very much focuses on the internal struggles that we all have in terms of trying to identify and then actually live the life that we want. And the struggles I've been through are are nothing compared to the, the struggles Mark has been through. Uh, but I think a lot of my struggles are very relatable. So please check out the book. And thank you again for listening. And I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.